Davidic Psalm as we continue our series of the Davidic Psalms that speak to key moments in David's life. And here it is. What convictions, so conviction, belief, what you, you, you see to be true, right? What convictions should grip us deeply? And what actions should follow those convictions? So you have a, a belief and then you have actions that follow that belief. So what is the belief and what are the actions? When the center of God's will for our lives in that moment or in that season is one of chastening or difficulty. So what convictions should grip us and what actions should follow those convictions when the center of God's will for our lives in that moment or in that season is one of chastening and or difficulty? We're at the center of God's will. It's where we should be. But God's will for us in that moment, in that season, in this time, whether it's short, long, what have you, is one of correction or of consequence or of repercussions or of difficulty. What should we do? What should we focus on? How should we act? What is the God-honoring, Christ-exalting, worship-inducing response when it is our turn to bear the repercussions of our forgiven sins. When we last left David in the Psalms, we looked together at a Psalm that David had penned after he was confronted publicly with his sins, as Pastor John gave us a good reminder of earlier. And it was with the adultery of his neighbor's wife Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. And we saw that in David's brokenhearted cry in that psalm, in one of the lowest moments of his entire life, how he lifted up in that moment the need, the deep needs of all people, and especially of David in that, in that time. But as we recall, while David's sin was forgiven, we're told that by the prophet Nathan, it did not come without consequence. It did not come without repercussion. And to remind ourselves, I'm going to read the portion that Nathan said to David in 2 Samuel 12, 7-12. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed them with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take away your wives before your eyes and I will give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. And then in response to this, David confessed, I've sinned against the Lord. And he was spared death, and he was forgiven by God. 
Yet his life was still met with trouble. It did not go un- with no consequences, no repercussions. David's illegitimate love child with Bathsheba was taken by the Lord. David's eldest son Ammon violated his half-sister Tamar. David's silence on the punishment of his eldest son fueled the rage of her full brother Absalom. And two years later, Absalom orchestrated the assassination of his older brother. And after fleeing for several years in Geshur, as um, Pastor John had read, Absalom returns to Jerusalem and eventually has some reconciliation with his father. But the Lord's word is true, and after several years of undermining David's authority and winning the favor of the people, and we saw that how that happened, Absalom deceives his father and makes his ways to Hebron, where rebellion awaits. And from the heart of this rebellion, the proclamation of the new king Absalom is heralded. And when David hears of it, David grabs his followers, and like an all-too-familiar practice, goes on the run and flees Jerusalem. And like many psalms before it, and we've done them all together, in the midst of this struggle is where we find Psalm 3. In the midst of this struggle. And it's no question, David was a flawed man. David is a flawed man. As we all are, he's made mistakes, he's, he fell, he failed, he did what humans do. And that is rebel against the God of creation. Yet his name is honored, it's lifted up, and it's not because of a perfect life. Only Christ has that honor. But ultimately, he always turned back in submission to God, ultimately. Maybe not immediately, but ultimately he always did. So David's fleeing the capital of his nation, Jerusalem. The temple's behind him. The blessings of God are in the distance. And he knows in his heart, he knows in his heart, God's doing this. God's keeping his word. This isn't because of some bad luck or some rogue child. It's like, I should have played ball with Absalom more often. Or, you know, we should have, you know, had some time together. I should have went to his recital or something like that. No, this is not something in that David just messed up. I'm sure there's some, it was attributed to that. But this is planning and the will of God coming to fruition, manifesting itself that God keeps his word. And his sins against God are ultimately put away. In the ultimate sense, David is forgiven. But he's not yet completely cleansed. And his sins are not in a vacuum. There's consequences. There's repercussions. And even for ourselves, God forgives our sins through Christ. Amen for that. But it does not disappear forever. And its effects still come. When Joshua and the Israelites were conquering Canaan, got rid of Jericho, Ai, there was a group in in the tribe inside Canaan that were terrified of that. They're like, we're next. They're coming. And and they got this God that does these plagues, and he's a tough, we got to do something. So what did they do? 
they try to deceive the Israelites. Let's put some old clothes on, put a little mud on our faces, and hey, we've been traveling so far. Don't hurt us. We're not from here. We're just passing through. You don't want innocent bystanders, right? And unfortunately, Joshua and the elders don't listen to the Lord in that sense, and they make a covenant not to hurt them. And when they learn of this deception... This is the response in Joshua 9, 18 through 21. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. We get forgiveness in this life, but we don't always get ultimate restoration. That comes later. And though Israel as a whole did not obey God in that instance, again, Forgiven, we keep moving, but you, you see the repercussions of, of, why, of not eliminating all of Israel's enemies, not eliminating Amalek, not eliminating all these things. And there's still issues today in the Middle East for those reasons. They don't go away. So before we read Psalm 3, which is going to be our Davidic Psalm for this morning, which we'll, we'll, we'll read together, I want to look at David in the midst of this this chastening that he's having. He really responds in an unnatural, spiritual way because of the Holy Spirit. Because how does a normal, natural person respond to consequence? Resistance, anger, spite, turmoil, worry, anxiety, fear, panic. Those are normal responses, right? But the problem is they don't glorify Christ. Because those emotions don't turn the natural man towards God, but against God. And if you're here, and you don't know God, and you don't have a desire to honor Christ with all that you are, understand the problem here. When you respond with resistance and anger and spite and turmoil and worry and anxiety and fear and panic, in so doing, you're telling the God of the universe, hey, you got it wrong. It's not supposed to be happening this way. I'm going to tell you how to, you know, run things. And in doing so, you only further incite your rebellion against the king of glory. But those who have been partakers of the divine gift of grace and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, may we learn now, as we look through this, through the Holy Spirit, in the life of David, in his season of chastening, And press on to glorify the greatness of Jesus even when our good God brings difficulty upon us. So that in our precious fellowship with him, even in our punishment, even in our our correction, the world may bear witness to the glory of God in the midst of his people. So David is fleeing northeast. When he has the opportunity to write down his reflections, he pens the following psalm in Psalm 3. Psalm 3. 
when David fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory in the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and blessing be on your people. Relatively short, but very dense. And what we see in this psalm is a man reaping what he sowed. In the midst of it, the Holy Spirit does not abandon David, but it moves him from the state of despair to the state of worshipful confidence And this is something that is available to all of us who submit to the Lordship of Christ. And all of us who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And in this psalm, we see how the Holy Spirit guided David's heart away from despair, back to God, even though his struggle was the center of God's will for him. So let the Spirit of God also guide us, that we too, we too, like David in this, may display divine joy in the midst of divine correction. So David's first handling of this situation is he lays out his troubles. He lays out his troubles. We see that in verse 1 and 2. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. After a lifetime of battle... All the nations are lurking around to destroy me. The king wanted to destroy me. My wife, Michael, despised me. Now some of my men have rebelled against me. And now my own son seeks to destroy me. And the numbers of those in favor of my removal are growing. They're growing and growing. And not only that, Lord, but many are saying that you abandoned me. Many are saying that I have fallen out of your favor. Many are saying that I'm rejected. Many are saying that there is no salvation for me in you. A better, younger, better looking with long wavy locks of my son. And it's true, that's what the Bible says. He had really nice hair. Is is coming along and he's taking my throne and he's sweet talking the people. And as we look at David's heart being laid out before God, we see two things. And the first is being the initiation of therapeutic prayer. The initiation of therapeutic prayer. He gets the aches that are in his heart and in his mind, and he sets them before God. And in so doing, he's setting them before himself. In prayer. And we're instructed to pray. And we're instructed to do this, Philippians 4, 5 through 7. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, 
by prayer and supplication. That means a, a deep begging, a desire. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when we pray and we put our mess before God, what follows? The peace of God. The peace of God follows. And what does it do? It guards our minds and it guards our hearts in Christ. Key fact there, you need Christ. Understand this, that when we bring our anxieties, we bring our fears, we bring our troubles, we bring our pain before God in prayer, and we ask of him with a gracious heart to tend to our pains, tend to our struggles, right? So we're not angry, we're not bitter, we're not hate-filled, we're not sinful in our prayer, but we're doing with thanksgiving. What follows is the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And, and what, is the, what is this peace doing? It's not just a pill that shows up randomly and you just take the peace of God. What is this peace doing? It's guarding our hearts, that's our emotions, our affections, and it's guarding our mind, which is our thoughts, which is our convictions. And in Christ, it's bringing us relief. And we're going to see this kind of unfold in this psalm. And when we pray like this, we're invoking the power of our happy and gracious Father to come and tend to us. Because what's happening is God's peace, by guarding our hearts and minds, is stopping our feelings, stopping our thoughts, stopping those things from prompting us to sin. You ever had a feeling... That you know, it's like, if I keep feeling this way, it's not going to end well. If I keep feeling this way towards my spouse, if I keep feeling this way towards my employer, if I keep feeling this way towards another person, look, I I know myself enough, I'm not going to respond well. At all. Or if you have a thought, one of those ugly thoughts, a lustful thought, a grievous thought, a sorrowful thought, if I continue to feed this little thought that's in my head, it's going to be bad. I'm going to keep sinning. It's going to prompt me to sin more and more and more and more. Right? And this is, this is what's therapeutic about prayer. It, it's so helpful that by laying our troubles out for, um, before God, even the ones he has us carrying, Even the troubles that he gives us. Look, here's the repercussions. Here's the consequence of your sin. I've forgiven you, but I can't just make it disappear. Otherwise, Christ wouldn't have had to come. It has to be dealt with. There is ramifications. There is a ripple effect. Don't worry, I'm going to help you, but it's there. By doing that, we're beginning a process that will bring... God's peace that surpasses all understanding upon us. And that's exactly what's happening in Psalm 3. David cries out to God, look at my troubles, so many foes, my own son. They're saying that there's no salvation for me. Woe is me. And in doing this, we see the next part of this therapy of prayer. And that's when when David lays out his troubles, he begins preparation for confrontation. Preparation for confrontation. There's a little transition between verse 2 and verse 3. You see it? There's a little transition. 
He says, they're saying there's no salvation for me in God. And there's a little preposition there in verse 3. But, but you, O Lord, but you, that, that's, a, that's a transfer of thought. That's a shift in the thinking. He's laying it out. And because he's laying it out, there's a cause and effect relationship there. And by laying it out and putting it in front of him, it's causing this but to occur. It's causing this shift to occur. And and this is why, this is why it's so important to realize this. And this is why Jesus harped on this. And this is why Jesus taught the reality of sin is much deeper than your actions. Matthew 5, 27-28, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Action. But I say to you, that everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent, that's in your mind, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. James picks up on this and dissects it a little more. James 1, 14 through 16. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Desire is not an object. Desire is not there. It is in your mind. And when it is conceived, it gets birth to sin. It's still here. And when sin is fully grown, action, it brings forth death. So David is laying this out. He's exposing his sin. He's exposing his thoughts before God. He's bringing them out of the realm of his mind. And he's placing them in front of the God of glory. This is why prayer is so important. It is so important. The battlefield of your mind is not a place you're going to win. It's not a place you're going to win. There's no laws of physics in there. I know, you ever had a weird dream? There's no laws of physics in there. It doesn't reflect reality. You got to get it out of there. You got to get it out of there. And you got to prepare it to be confronted. So he places him in front of the God of glory. And this is why, this is why we see in many of David's Psalms, his, the Psalms of distress, the transition, the but. These might be familiar to you. I hope they are. Psalm 52, 1 through 5. When Doeg the Edomite told Saul, Come to the house of Ahimelech, right? Why do you boast in evil, mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than what is speaking right. You love all words that desire. Oh, deceitful tongue. That sounds like a whole platter of my troubles. And where it's next? What's next in verse 5? But God, but God will break you down forever. That little preposition, but God. Psalm 57, 6, when David fled from Saul in the cave, again, should be familiar with all of us. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they, but they have fallen into it themselves. Psalm 59, 6 through 8, when Saul sent men to his house to kill him. Our very first psalm that we, we, we discussed together. Each evening they come back howling like dogs, prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing in their mouths with swords in their lips for who they think will hear us. What's verse 8? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You see this all over the Psalms, and there's a lot of them. His prayer is, is structured that he's just throwing it all out before the Lord. And when he lays his troubles out before the God in prayer, he exposes them. 
And he allows them to be prepared to be confronted. And that's where that, but, that transition comes from. So therapeutic prayer. So what follows, and we see this follow in the psalm, in Psalm 3, he confronts his troubles with truth. He confronts his troubles with truth. Verses 3 through 6. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried, cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. What a difference in tone. What a difference in attitude. What a difference in belief. What a difference in conviction. Something happened there. Something happened there, and it's happened many times with David. All deliberate communication forces us to confront the topic at hand. Prayer is a forced communication. I'm not going to keep wallowing in my sorrow. I'm not going to keep wallowing in my sin. I'm not going to keep being pushed around by these feelings and emotions about a situation. I'm going to get on my knees. I'm going to take them out of my head. I'm going to set them before the Lord, and I'm going to deal with this. I'm inviting the Lord to sit down with me and deal with this. And for David, by laying his troubles before God, he's under attack, Israel's in jeopardy, people are losing faith, he's losing faith. He begins to reflect with God, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, his situation and his troubles. And that's where we see this transition here. And what what follows that but. And then we see that David begins to confront his troubles with the reality of God. With the reality of God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. What do you mean there's no salvation for me and God? What should I be concerned about if many are rising against me? You see his thought process. God exists. He reigns. He's a shield about me. He's my protector. I've fought lions and bears and giants and armies. I've been hunted. I've been terrorized. I've been humiliated. And in every instance, every moment of my life, God existed and he has been my protector. He has been my shield. He is my glory. He has given me this kingdom. He has anointed me king over all the peoples of Israel. If it wasn't for the Lord, I'd be surrounded by sheep right now. All that is respectable, all that is admirable, all that is glorious in me is because of God. It's because of God. He's my glory and therefore the lifter of my head. And often in times of, in times of struggle, and I, and I pray this for myself, I pray this for all of you, we acknowledge God, right? We'll pray, oh God, this stuff is happening. But we don't pursue God. We don't, we don't pursue God. And if you do, wonderful. Excellent. I love it. But we don't. Realistically, we don't. We acknowledge him. You're, you're there, God. I'm praying. Put another tally mark. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a prayer warrior. But, but we just don't follow. We don't, we don't keep going. It's as if the reality of God means nothing, but it's just a preference on a survey somewhere. Yeah, I believe in God. It doesn't do anything. 
Our lives need to be moved and shaped by the reality of God. We must allow ourselves to be moved often, often with repetition. That's why we're commanded to pray without ceasing in everything with thanksgiving and prayer. It's all connecting. It's all there. It's all one message. It's all one teaching. It's all one way of life. We got to do this continuously because when we do and we're laying out our troubles before God, we get confronted by the reality of God and we think about it often. And in doing so, it's going to, I hope, it shapes our fears, it shapes our lives, it shapes our feelings, it shapes our choices. And that's exactly what David is doing. Exactly what David is doing. Because the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is now coming. It's now coming. What is it guarding first? His mind. His mind, he's combating all the lies that there's no salvation for him in God with truth. Wait, God exists. So that, 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 can't, do, that can't be. There's foes coming. Well, God exists. I'm, I'm going to die. Well, God exists. And that's where we see David also confront his troubles with the promises of God. The reality of God trickles down and he starts to see, reflect Think about the promises of God. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. What's the holy hill? It's Zion, the temple, where the word of God comes. And what was some, was some powerful words that David received from there through the prophet Nathan? The covenant. The covenant. When you start to pray, and you're laying out everything before God, and now you're like, wait a minute. God exists. Wait a minute. There's promises he made to me. And this, the reality of God and the promises of God are telling me that can't be. And now you're starting to beat up your troubles. They're looking smaller and smaller and smaller. And you're, you're looking more towards God and more towards God. And he's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's important. David knows the promises of God. Do we know the promises of God? There's many of them. Are they precious to us? Do they change our moods? Do they change our thought processes? Do they motivate us? Do they they motivate us on how to treat others? This confrontation that David is having here leads to another transition where he confronts his troubles with song. He confronts his troubles with song. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. The beginning of verse 7, Arise, O Lord, is an expression of old, when the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is not not David just just being inspired and just giving out words. This is something he's, he's referencing. This is something he's heard before. This is something he's studied. Numbers 10, 35 through 36. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, being the ark, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. What we see from David as he's wrestling with this, he's wrestling with this, and he's starting, to, he's starting to reflect on the reality of God. And then he's starting to reflect on the promises of God. What happens? Joy. 
spontaneous joy. And he just, he, all he, he, arise, O oh Lord. I remember that. Arise, O oh Lord. I remember this song. It's so perfect for, this, for the situation I'm in. So when we confront our troubles in our lives with the God of the universe, and we're in Christ, and therefore in his favor, we rejoice. Not because we're forcing it, it's just you have no choice to rejoice. That was not an intentional rhyme. 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Talking about Christ. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Belief in Christ leads to joy. Belief in God and who he is and that he's there and that he offers a way of salvation to sinners. And if they would only turn from their rebellion and seek God and Christ and ask for forgiveness, let us rejoice in the great God that we have and open our mouths with worship and praise and hymns and spiritual songs. When we become confronted with the truth of God and the truth of the gospel and that God provides a way to escape his damning wrath and a way to be forgiven and a way to enjoy him forever by the offering of his son, that produces a joy that is unexpressible, inexpressible and filled with joy and glory. And it often finds us in song. It often finds us in song. And if that isn't enough, we're forgiven. It produces relief. It produces relief, not joy. It's that God pays for salvation that gives us joy. Not that we're just forgiven. That just clears your conscience. What produces the joy is the fact that we're forgiven at such a great cost to God himself. So David's laying it out. God's now his peace, right, from our verse earlier in Philippians 4. His peace is protecting his mind, right? It's starting to guard his mind, give him the peace. You know, he's, he's getting happy in the Lord. You know, the truth of God, the promises of God, they're guarding my mind. And now with the song, they're guarding my heart. They're guarding my emotions. They're guarding my affections. I don't want to be mad anymore at so-and-so. I don't want to be hate-filled. I don't want to be, you know, cranky or, or sullen or anything like that. I'm too happy. I'm too happy because I'm rejoicing in the, in the truth and the promises of God. Our battle is not always unpleasant. It's a, it's a nice journey when it, we do it with the Lord. And one reason music is so special in worship, even though it's not the only form, It's not the only form of worship. I am attempting with every ounce of my being right now to worship God because I'm yearning for all of you to join me as we read this and we exposit this book together. We're looking at the truth that we see God bigger and bigger and bigger and that we worship him and we praise him, whether it's a silent prayer while you're sitting there or whether it's a hymn or whether it's a song or whether it's just a a happy thought that God is good. That's worship, right? But the reason music, actual music, the stuff I can't play, the reason that is so special and there's a place for it is because it has a special attraction to the heart. It truly does. It has a special tie with our emotions. It has a special tie with our affections. We can memorize lyrics and melodies many times 
without even knowing what it's really saying. You hear the song three or four times and suddenly you're, you're singing it the whole thing and you have no idea what's going on. You just know the words. And I think a quote from an unknown author captures this well. And I may have used it before, um, but music speaks what cannot be expressed, soothes the mind and gives it rest, heals the heart and makes it whole, flows from heaven to the soul. And in David's expression of praise, this, this, is, this is great. His expression of praise fuels more God-honoring, Christ-exalting worship. It fuels more God-honoring, Christ-exalting worship. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. Doesn't sound very pleasant, but this is, this is huge here. This expression of his joy in God in song, Arise, O Lord, is bringing to his mind more reasons to continue to praise God. When you start singing about the, the grace of Christ and the beauty of Christ and the power of Christ, naturally, what are you going to do? You're going to think about times when the grace of Christ, the beauty of Christ, and the power of Christ has worked in your life. It, the things that you can relate to the truth of it. This expression that David is using, he's used it before. Psalm 57.4, when David was hiding from Saul, my soul is in the midst of lion. I lay down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. But what happened in that situation? God rescued him. How about when Saul sent assassins to David's home, which is reflected in Psalm 59, verses 6 through 7. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing in their mouths, swords in their lips. Teeth, sharp, scary teeth, for they think, who will hear us? What happened in that situation? God helped David escape by Saul's daughter. This expression that David is using, you strike all the enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked, is his little expression that, God, you have de-weaponized, you have pretty much made all my enemies have gums. You have saved me so many times before. So you see how special true worship, especially in song, is. It pushes us back to recall, to remember. And that, again, fuels more worship. And it forces us to recall and remember and more worship. And recall and remember and more worship. It's such a gift. It is such a gift. You ever needed to put a song on repeat? Right? Or didn't want the worship song to end? Or you wanted another opportunity to serve and give because it felt so great? Another person to minister to? I want another hour with that person? Or another person to evangelize to? I get excited about that. Oh, man, give me five more people. Right? That, that's worship that is fueling more worship. It's a self-contained flame. It's awesome. It's, just, it's wonderful. And worship is one of the most powerful means we have of casting away trouble and angst. And how did it start? Prayer. Prayer. It started with prayer. So when our minds are overtaken by the reality 
and the beauty of God, our heart's affections can't help but spill over and manifest Christ's exalting praise. And what we see last in David's Psalms, David's Psalm, is he compares his troubles to future grace. He compares his troubles to future grace. Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. You know, David began the psalm with troubling thoughts about his countrymen. There is no salvation for him in God, right? Which is a negative little comment, little negative little thought. And what does he end it with? The truth. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Not them. To the Lord. And therefore, David understands that our chastening is not wrathful. It's not full of wrath. It's not full of anger. It's not full of malice. It's not full of spite by God, even when he's correcting us. It's not meant to be mean-spirited. There is a distinction between the people of God and the people of the world who do not love God and the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Amen for that. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So when one comes to Christ, the wrath of God is removed because it's placed in Christ. It doesn't just go away. It's dealt with in Christ on the cross. God's, God's exhausted his wrath on his Son for all time. Hebrews 10.14, for by one single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified Amen for that. So then, what's God's attitude toward us when he's correcting us? What's God's attitude toward us when he's chastening us? What's God's attitude toward us when we're dealing with the ramifications and the repercussions of our forgiven sin? It's mercy. God is being merciful by doing that to us. Romans 9, 22-23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory. So who knows the riches of God's glory? For the vessels of mercy. So if you know the riches of God's glory, which only comes through Christ, that means you submit to the lordship of Christ, that means you know Christ, you're a disciple of Christ, you're a child of God, What are you referenced to in this this verse? You are a vessel of mercy. That means you're a cup that gets mercy poured into it. I get mercy from God. Mercy, 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 mercy. I don't get wrath from God. I don't get anger from God and and punishment and and meanness and, and all that. I get mercy from God. And when he is chastising me, he is being merciful to me. He is being loving. He is being good. And what I love is it's scattered all over the Bible. Proverbs 3.12, For the Lord reproves whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Hebrews 12.6, For the Lord disciplined the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Revelation 3.19, To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Deuteronomy 8.5, know then in your heart that as man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Psalm 94.12, blessed is the man whom you discipline. You're blessed. O O Lord, in whom you teach out of your law. 
So David then rests on the truth, right? He's reflecting on his future grace, his future glory, and he rests on the truth that our salvation is guaranteed. What 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 is his countrymen saying? He doesn't have salvation from the Lord. But what is David's conviction? Nah, it belongs to the Lord and it's guaranteed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people, meaning it is continuously. It is a present tense. It is constantly being there. It's blessing. Blessing be on your people forever. He knows the covenant of the Lord. He was excited about it. He knows what God promised him, and he's invoking that. He's saying, on the authority of God's promise, on the authority of God's covenant, on the authority of God's word, which, by the way, we have two, everything's going to be fine. Second Samuel 7, 27 through 29. This is David's response, the tail end of his response after he receives the blessed covenant that will, speaks to Christ and the everlasting covenant in the throne of David. Starting at verse 27 through 29. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, right? Saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage. I, David, have found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, it may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. Forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Not only saying, I, Lord, I, I want it to be blessed forever, but it will be blessed forever. We need to take God's promises. There are so many in this. And as I reflected on this, I was like, I don't know enough of them. There's so many in here that I just don't recall. And we need to seriously take them serious. They're promises by the God of the universe to his people. What better, what better tool do you want to overcome anxiety and stress and worry and angst than a promise from the holy God of the universe? <clears throat> Simple but profound lesson. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. Therefore, Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work on you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Salvation is guaranteed for those who truly know the Lord. So David is ultimately spared harm from this rebellion. A little spoiler alert for the the tail end of this. From his son Absalom. It doesn't mean it's not without tragedy. Unfortunately, his son is killed in the ensuing conflict. Clearing a path for David's true successor, Solomon, to take the throne. So what what, what do we make of all this? What do we make of all this? I got four, I believe, four applications for us. um, and And I really want all of you to really dwell on this as I continue to dwell on it myself. The first one is shape our prayers with the reality of God. Shape our prayers with the reality of God. There's a reason our Lord teaches us to pray when he says this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be my name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That has nothing to do with me. It's all God. Am I a part of that? By the grace of God, I am. But that is all God. Father, you're in heaven. Your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come, Lord. 
Get rid of all this sin and rebellion. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not mine. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven right now. We, we mustn't allow our prayers to just take the form of thank you and please. Or please and thank you. Right? When we, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. We, we were commanded, Philippians 4, to make your request known to God, right? But what I, what I want all of us, and this is what Jesus is teaching us, is to frame our prayers by first taking into account the one we're talking to. Take into account the reality of God. Let yourself, for just a moment, and I understand quick prayers, I have many of them, but when you, when you genuinely take time aside for prayer, take time aside for prayer. Think about God. Think about who he is. Think about what that means for your life. Think about what that means for the world. Think about what that means for your request. Saturate and marinate your mind with the truth of God himself. Second, know what God has promised and treasure it. Know what God has promised and treasure it. You know, God has given such, such a wealth of teaching, especially now in the church. We have so many men that God has blessed over the ages of the church that have just dedicated their lives to exposit this word in so many different ways. We have churches out the wazoo. I mean, there's one on every corner. There's, there's preaching. <sighs> know the promises of God and treasure the promises of God. It, it's so important. Memorize verses. Memorize sweet promises. May they serve as a balm to your souls. Use it as a weapon against the devil, as Jesus did. As Jesus did in the wilderness. Third, fill your memory with hymns and songs of Christ-exalting truth. Fill your memory with hymns and songs of Christ-exalting truth. Surround yourself, okay, with God-honoring Christ-exalting music, entertainment, pleasures, they take many forms. But think of this logically. It is going to be incredibly difficult to have a deep communion with God if your mind is on the TV show you just watched, if your mind is on your schedule for later, if your mind is somewhere else. There are times I need to take an hour of just sitting there just sitting there doing nothing but listening to either sermons or hymns or teachings of God's goodness before I can even begin to read this word, before I can even begin to exposit this word. Because all I'm thinking about is the show I just watched. All I'm thinking about is work. All I'm thinking about is the mess that was just made. Take this seriously and fill your mind with good things. And lastly, take time to make our future grace more real. Take time to make our future grace more real. You know, God has given us a tremendous hope for the future. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, what we read earlier, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpassing all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, right? We just went a lot through that. What happens 13 verses later? 
It's beautiful. In Philippians 4.19, And my God, my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches, to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What are the, what's, what's the truth about the riches of Christ and glory? They're inexhaustible. They're infinite. You'll never see the end of it. So what this means is that God really does want us not to worry about our future. He genu- I mean, that is ridiculous. That, that's just insane. That's like saying infinity plus five. It just, it, he's, he's making a point. That look at where I'm pulling my blessings for you. Out of a bottomless pit of glory. Why are you worried? So what's the practical application of that truth? Is that when we reflect on this, truly reflect on this, I pray that it moves us, including myself, to love our money less, love our cars less, love our luxury less, love our comfort less, love our security less. Those are all beautiful things and blessings of the Lord, by all means. But love it less, that if it was taken from you tomorrow, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't be crying in the corner. That you'd give glory to God and say, God gives and God takes away. I'm still happy in the Lord. What a message. And on the other side of that, allow that truth of future grace to move you to love God more, love people more, love children more, love your spouses more, love sacrifices, opportunities to sacrifice more, love the brethren more. Let's hold on to things that will be going with us in glory and try to let go of our attractions and our affections of the things that won't go with us in glory. That way we can say alongside with the Apostle Paul from Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. To be that, to be that, we need to practice holding on to our future grace more, more and more. It needs to be more real to us. Before we pray, um, we're going to be singing the hymn, What Wondrous Love Is This? Usually it's a Good Friday hymn. I like it, and um, my youth is rebellious, so we're going to sing it. Um, But the words are just so rich and beautiful. And the reason I chose that, um, I love my wife. She's like, it's a little little somber, don't you think? I'm like, "It's it's it's a hymn of reflection. And after everything we spoke about, I think it's appropriate. So let's pray, and then let's sing together. Heavenly and Holy Father, God, we thank you, good and gracious Father, that you give us a a Bible, a scripture, a word that we can hold in our hands, yet it has no end. What a beautiful truth. Father, I thank you for the life of David. I thank you for this church. I thank you for our opportunities to worship and praise the glorious name of Christ who gives us all hope in all things. And I thank you, Lord, for bringing that truth just making it real in our minds. And we want to strive, Lord, all of us together to run towards Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we just thank you, Lord, and we ask your blessing and we ask your help in that journey through your Holy Spirit. And now as we sing, Lord, I pray that you captivate all our hearts and our minds, not on any performance, but on the truth that is embedded in the hymns and songs that we choose at this church to glorify the name of Christ. And I thank you for it. 
and ask your blessing now in Christ's name. Amen.